Okay, so uh, welcome back from uh, lunch to our next session in this Yom Yun. This class is called To Your Heart's Desire, How slash or to eat meat with Rabbi Aviva Richmond. We'll take a, a broad and deep look at some core halachic, sorry, <laughs> at some core halachic um, and Haggadic sources that shed light on what we have to consider if and when we choose to eat meat. Starting from the book of Devarim, hitting highlights in the Talmud and medieval interpretations and lending in the contemporary moment, which questions must we raise and what answers should we have before taking a bite? This will also serve as a case study to investigate the relationship between ritual and ethics in halacha. Rabbi Richman is a Rosh Yeshivayat Hadar and has been on the faculty since, since 2010. A graduate of Oberlin College, she studies in the Pradeskolel and in the Drisha Scholar Circle and was ordained by Rabbi Denny Landis. She's completing a doctorate in Talmud at NYU and her interests include Talmud, Halakha, Midrash, and gender, and also a healthy dose of Nigunim. With that, I'll turn this to you, Rabbi Richman. Thank you so much. Thanks for the introduction. Nice to be here with folks to do a bit of learning on this Sunday morning in January in our new Gregorian year. Um, the, the question of how to eat meat is one that people have been thinking about for, for many, many years. Um, obviously, it's taken on some new valences in the very contemporary moment as we're hearing more and more about lab-grown meat that may even be somewhat affordable sometime in the maybe longer future um, that doesn't involve killing animals at all. So there's, there's a lot of kind of specific and, and technical questions one could ask about the contemporary moment. What we're going to do is explore some of the most kind of fundamental sources in the history of, of Halakhan Agadah that should hopefully give us um, a sense of the kinds of questions we need to be asking before taking a bite of meat. Um, and part of the goal in this in this learning is to kind of move beyond the vegetarian or meat eater divide and the kind of black and white nature that that question of whether to eat meat can often take. And instead to explore a lot of sources that assume meat eating is happening, but there are all sorts of social um, social constraints and other uh, limitations or contexts around how, how to eat meat. Um, okay, so without further ado, we're going to dive into the learning. And um, the, there's sort of more material on this source sheet than we're going to cover in full, but I'm going to basically narrate some of the, the highlights, I think, and we'll kind of linger on certain points in the text a little bit more. And I hope that this can be a resource for you if you want to do more learning in the future. Um, okay. All right, we're going to start with a passage in the Talmud that I love because it's just, it's such great imagery for laying out um, to, I think, very different options, but I'll want to hear from you how different they, they may actually feel. Um, okay, so this is from Sanhedrin 59b. 
we're imagining Adam Harishon in the Garden of Eden. And, um, and part of what I think we have to just have in mind before we look at this text in and of itself is thinking about, um, you know, if we want to, if we want to try to turn or uncover sources that might help us understand, well, what should our ideal be? Where do we turn? Where do we look? Um, is the Garden of Eden one option, right? When God sort of fully designs the human habitat and the way that we eat, is that meant to be not only some kind of moment at the origin of time, the way we tell our story, but also something that's an ideal that we might want to replicate. So here we're going to see these two different pictures of what, what the diet for Adam Harishon was like in Gan Eden. Amar Rav Yehuda Amar Rav. Adam Harishon, lo hutar lo basar lachila. He was not allowed to have meat to eat. Dichtiv lachem yela ochla olachol chayatas haaretz. Because God says very clearly, all the vegetation is both for you and the animals to eat. But by implication, the animals are not there for you to eat. Right? Later, after the flood, that's when God permits eating animals. And God says the animals will be like vegetation. They are there for you to eat. Okay, there's some restrictions about that, like not eating blood, not taking a limb from a living animal, but essentially that is a shift. Now, the Talmud is confused about that, right? Why would, why would there have been this limitation on Adam in the Garden of Eden? Right? God says, you shall rule over the fish of the sea. That's what God says to the first humans. You're in charge. My love, Lachila, doesn't that imply that they are yours to eat if you want to eat them? Lo, Limalacha, the Gemara answers, no, they couldn't use the fish to eat. They could use them for work, and there follows here a series of, of similar questions about the different animals. You know, doesn't ruling over them mean that they could eat them? And the response is no, it means they could use them for work, and there's all these kinds of somewhat, somewhat convoluted or complex ways that they could have used the animals for work. But we end up with a, a kind of clear resolution here that Adam in Gan Eden could not eat meat even though there was some level of um, working with the animals, benefiting from the animals for labor, could not consume any animals. Okay, that's picture one. Picture two, whoops, sorry. Metive, totally different picture of Adam in Gan Eden. Haya Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema Omer, Adam Harishon mesev began Eden haya, vahayu malachay asharit tzolin lo basar, umesanenin lo yayin. Adam Harishon, it's like he's at a Roman banquet in Gan Eden. He would recline like we do with the Seder, and the malachim would roast meat for him and, and um, filter, right, filter wine for him. Um, meaning, I think, the picture is here. If we're trying to imagine Gan Eden, what's the most idyllic form of, of eating and food? Of course it had meat and wine that are considered kind of the nicest foods that anybody could possibly have. How could you have Gan Eden without, without meat? Okay, not clear exactly how idyllic this really is though, because then our continuation is, Hitzitz bo nachash, the rabbi chvodo, v'nitkanebo, 
But that actually just led to jealousy. Seeing the way that Adam ate, that's what made the snake jealous when he saw all this glory and honor. Um, and so ultimately, right, that's maybe a, a, an ideal of fancy food, but it does lead to um, sort of disaster as it catalyzes the snake's jealousy. And the response, the way that the Gemara deals with these two different pictures, whether he could eat animals or not, is Hatam min When the angels were, were preparing food for Adam, that was food that fell from heaven rather than having to involve and um, killing any actual animals. Okay, that's our, that's our first picture there. I just want to start there before we get into any of the more technical sources. And I'm curious to hear your reactions. The Talmud has this resolution, um, Basar, that comes from heavens as a way to, to integrate and harmonize these two different approaches. But just curious, if you just look at those two approaches on their own, right? No, obviously in an ideal world, Adam would not be eating meat versus of course, he's eating delicious roasted meat. And um, any responses that people want to put in chat to those two scenes and which might seem um, more resonant with you or any questions that you have from this starting point of the Talmud before we continue with our journey. I think the chat should be open. Um, so curious to hear if there are any particular questions or comments that emerge just thus far with these two different scenes. I have never heard the second version. Mm -hmm. I had only heard the first version. Okay, great. So I do think certainly anybody who's trying to make an argument for vegetarianism mm -hmm. puts forth that first version very yeah. prominently. It's I heard very... it from Rabbi Riskin many many years ago at lincoln square synagogue okay he only would eat meat for shabbos because he was feeling that eating meat was somehow not uh, an ideal thing for a good jew to be doing okay so great so indeed right i think that's sort of a very um a more well-known version of, of the story is, of course, in Gan Eden, there was no consumption of animals, there's no death or violence. Um, and the other, the other picture, of course, Adam was eating meat, is maybe a little less well-known. Okay, so that's just a bit of a frame for um, now the rest of our learning, which is not about Gan Eden, but about our real world. Um, so as we move into the halachic texts about how we navigate the complicated choices around eating meat in the real world, um, I think it's good to name these two divergent pictures of the ideal because often the way we are navigating the real, right, is and certainly should be tied to some kind of, of larger vision we might have of what the ideal should be. We don't always articulate that vision to ourselves or to others. And I think it's important to see that actually those two different versions of the ideal exist. Um, okay, and when we don't have Basar coming down from heaven to mediate 
those two ideals, right? Of course, we should be able to delight and enjoy everything in the world um, versus a restraint around how we relate to other creatures. If we don't have that being mediated by, by malachim, by angels, then what, what do we do? That is what we are going to spend the rest of our time on. Okay. So here we go. Our core halachic sources. Whoop. Blank page. Meet in the real world. That's where we want to be. Sorry, I always feel like I'm giving you a little bit of a roller coaster ride in the screen share, so just put on your seatbelt as we scroll up and down. Okay, so in Shemot, we have um, we have this language of Kiddushah. That's what I want to highlight in these this first set of three psukim from the Torah. The language of Kiddushah, of sanctity, that's tied to our practices around eating animals. Um, so in Shemot, you should be sacred to me. You can't eat trefot. You can't eat animals that have, um, they would probably just mean been, been torn up probably by another wild animal. Mm-hmm. You can't eat that yourself. Um, we have in Dvarim, ki am kadosh ata. In the bold here, right? You are a holy nation. And this is tied both to not eating um, nevela, right, meat that hasn't been shechted, but also tied to the rules about basar bechalap, not having meat and milk together, right, that's tied to kiddusha. And finally, in Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, where you would expect it with something like the Holiness Code, um, we have all the laws of the specific animals we can or can't eat, and the, the closing verse in that long discussion is, Ani Hashem Elokechem, you should be holy. You should be holy to me. That's why you can't eat any creepy crawlers. Okay, so that the idea here is there's an a there's um, a frame of kiddusha around our our eating practices, and I think you can understand that in at least two different ways. And this is where some of our questions about around ritual and ethics are really going to emerge. Does kiddusha essentially mean, like it often does in the Torah, um, something about distinctiveness and being set apart? So the idea here with all these rules about eating meat are you have different rules of how you eat meat because you're meant to be a distinct people in a distinctive relationship with God. And so that's about some kind of ritual or you might even say aesthetic frame. Or is there some kind of ethical undergirding to the to the laws related to eating meat. So that's a larger question. We're going to circle back to that in the end of the session as well. How do we understand this idea of kiddusha and eating meat? But I wanted to give you that language and that framing because it is so prominent in the Torah. Okay, we're really going to spend more of our time in our um, biblical jumping off point in Dvarim chapter 12. Um, where the Torah talks about um, basar ta'ava, eating meat because you crave meat, as opposed to eating meat because you are commanded to bring a sacrifice or because you want to be bringing a sacrifice to God. Okay, so I'm going to read through some of this passage here. Um, it first talks about that we'll bring all of our sacrifices to the place that God chooses when we have that place and come into the land. Um, and that's where we will bring 
right? Any kind of any kind of sacrifice that we're bringing, and any kind of vow that might be made that involves a voluntary offering, we're going to bring it to this one place. Usmachtem will be joyful there. Lifnei Hashem Elokechem, Atem, Uvnechem, Uvnotechem. So you and your whole family, Avdechem ba'amhotechem, but also your servants and your maid servants, ve'haleviyasherbisharechem. And the Levites who have no land of their own, so they're going to be living more in the in the city, in this place that's being chosen. They have no land of their own, which means they don't have the means to produce their own food or have their own cattle. When you are going to eat meat and offer a sacrifice, um, you bring it to this place where eating meat becomes a shared experience. Okay? So I just want you to think about this. We usually think about the ritual of bringing offerings to the temple as um, right, something that's sort of entirely in the ritual realm. Part of the picture here is when you do that, when you do this expensive thing of killing an animal to eat it as a sacrifice, you do that in a place where you will then share it. Right? And not just with your own immediate family, with your servants and maidservants and the people who are landless, who live there. Okay. Right? And then we have a warning. You can't just bring your sacrifices anywhere you want, only in the place that God chooses. Um, okay. And then we have this phrase, Pasuk Tetvav 15 here. Let's scroll down a little bit. Um, Rak. Bechol avat nafshecha tizbach ve'achalta. So, anytime your heart desires, anytime you desire it, you are welcome to make an offering and eat meat to the extent that God blesses you with, with meat to have. Um, and when you do that, you can eat tame or tahor, right? Whether it's an animal that can be offered on the altar or not. Um, such as these wild, these wild animals, right? The, the deer or the gazelle, okay? What's happening in this verse? This is sort of our most important verse, verse 15 here. It's allowing you to eat meat outside of the context of offering a sacrifice, wherever you may live. Um, and you can eat not only domesticated animals, which can be offered on the Mizbeach, on the altar, those animals that you raise, like sheep or cows or goats. Um, you could even eat the animals that you would have to hunt, Tzvi and Ayal. So they're kosher animals, but they still have the, the split hooves, chew their cud, um, but they're not domesticated, they're wild, and they can't be offered on the altar, but you can eat them when you want to. Okay. Um, and we have, it's like a little bit repetitive, it talks about the same kind of thing, right? When God expands the borders of the land, so you're not going to be able to bring a sacrifice whenever you want, it's just going to be too far to go away, then you can, in fact, eat meat without offering it as a sacrifice. Um, and I'll just read one more verse here to, to bring this home. Ach, ka'asher just like you can eat that meat, just like you would eat this deer or gazelle. And, and then our only rule is you can't eat the blood 
which would always be offered on the altar. You can't eat the blood at home, and this is the source for the idea of draining all the blood from an animal. Okay, why is this so significant? Why are we spending so much time on this? Um, so often people think of this part of Devarim as, um, right, what happens, like, it's trying to establish centralized avodah in the Beit HaMikdash, right, a centralized place of worship, and yet still allowing you to eat meat outside of that. But two things are clear from this. One is, it's clear that the assumption, the ideal assumption, was that any time you eat meat, it is part of a sacrifice. That was the, that's the initial assumption. And then this verse is allowing you to eat meat outside of the context of sacrifice on the Mizbeach. Um, and I want to stress that because, again, this idea of eating meat as part of a sacrifice, it's not only about the religious ritual involved, it's also meant that it became a shared experience, that meat was going to be shared with all the people who were there. And the question becomes, well, how much is there an allowance to eat meat without it being in that framework and context, right? More in a more accessible way, just at home, um, where you will be less likely to be sharing it with people who have, um, who have need, right? The landless who are in the city. How much is this? Well, if you have to, if you really want to, then fine, you can do it. And how much is this? Like, yes, of course, you should be able to eat meat. And so it should be more accessible. So that's what we're going to explore as we looked at later interpretations of this passage. Okay, so there's a debate. We're just going to get to the, the main contours of this debate about how to read this passage in Devarim among the early rabbis. Um, Rabbi Ishmael says, um, Rabbi Shmael says this teaches us that meat out of your own desire, meat to just eat based on your craving, as opposed to offering a sacrifice of Thanksgiving or part of a holiday, um, it was forbidden in the desert for the people. They were not allowed to eat meat whenever they wanted. And only when they got to the land was there then an allowance for that. Okay, so that already teaches us that it seems like if in the desert it was forbidden, that's maybe also painting some picture of ideally you're not just eating meat whenever you want. Ideally, meat is tied to these um, to these structures of of God of um, of sharing that sacrifice with other people. And then there's okay, there's some there's some allowance once they get to the land, and that would be more more difficult. But we have other, right, another perspective. Rabbi Akiva says, no, 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 the Torah is not sort of weighing in on whether or not it was allowed at the time. It's just teaching what the rules are going to be when they enter the land. It's just trying to, to teach you that when you do eat meat, you can't eat the blood wherever you are. But it's not implying that they weren't allowed to eat meat whenever they wanted in the desert. Okay, so again, two different pictures. In another moment that we think of as a sort of designed by God eating experience in the desert, how much was eating meat um, a part of that, right? Eating meat whenever you'd want a part of that. Obviously, we have the biblical stories of the Slav. You know, we're going to hear more about Mun from Rabbi Silber a little bit later. Um, but these two different pictures about how accessible 
or part of the regular rhythm of life meat was in the desert itself. And finally, this is the position that I think I really want to highlight. I don't think it's quite as well known. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah Omer, Lo bahakatuv ela lelam derech eretz, shelo yuchal adam basar, ela lete avon. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, actually the point of this passage is to teach you that proper behavior is that you only eat meat when you have a real craving for it, te'avon. So what you think of in the biblical text is just setting up a circumstance, when, when you happen to want meat, fine, you can eat it. Actually, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariz is saying that that's not just setting up a context and scenario, that's teaching you that you should only eat meat when you have a real serious craving. Okay, and as we go on to read the rest of this, just picture sort of, I don't know, hot dog stands or all of the different venues nowadays where meat is available and cheap. He goes on to say, Could it be that you can just like pick up meat in the marketplace and eat it? And it's a super simple and accessible kind of transaction. Maybe like you weren't even thinking about eating meat at all, but you happen to walk by a hot dog stand and there's a hot dog, so I'll just go ahead and buy it. Could it be you can just eat meat in that kind of casual way? Tamud lomar, vizavachta mi mitoncha. No, the Torah says, you slaughter from your own cows and sheep. So you can only eat meat when you have cows and sheep. can only eat meat when you have cows and sheep, not just you happen to go to the market and you walked by a vendor. Okay, what do you think his point is? What, what do you think this idea is? You can only eat meat. Mi o mitzoncha. When you have those animals and not just picking something up from, um, from the shuk. Any thoughts on what you think he might be getting at with that formulation? Yes, Joel. Intimately involved with um, seeing how the meat is processed, like you, you shecht it, you, you slaughter it, and it's like I'm from Canada. The one of the political parties, it has a two resolutions that contradict each other. One is for the what what they call Eskimo here, the Inuit, for for them to be able to hunt uh, seals. And, and supporting that, and one and the other resolution by the same party is opposed to it because of animal rights. But the idea people for it is that it's part of their lifestyle. It's and they have all sorts of rituals. Uh, their whole view of of uh, what life is, and they ask the animal for forgiveness. So you're intimately involved with it. In the same way, shlichita, ideally, you're intimately involved with it. You don't go to a supermarket to buy it. You. Uh, you see what it, you know, there's different ideas like what it is, but you're basically uh, the soul, you know, the soul of the animal. And you're asking in some way, some people say you're, there's all sorts of theories about the soul of the animal in Shlita, but you're, you're, you are doing something and it's, it's because of your Taba, you know, because you want it. Like you're not because, not because you're trying to hurt animals and you make that, the whole Shlita process will to make that clear. Okay, okay, so certainly there's something about you see the process much more intimately if it's coming from your own animals. Um, so that is, that's certainly, right, one, one picture, thank you, that you just, you have to know the animal. 
um, great. I'm also seeing in the chat here, but this con these texts contradict each other because we have Tzvi and Ayal mentioned in the biblical passage, the wild animals, right? The deer and the gazelle. You don't know them well. So what, is it, so what does it mean to sort of have that um, possibility of hunting an animal that you didn't raise and you don't know well? How does, how does that affect this picture? Um, and... Great. Okay. And then, right, I see another comment here in the chat, right? Maybe the idea is you have to have such a strong craving that it justifies a major investment. Okay. So another way of reading has to be that they're coming from your own animals is you are aware of how much loss you're going to incur. And um, there's a, there's been a big financial investment in this animal and you're aware of that loss by eating the meat, you're not going to do that um, randomly. It's going to be in response to, to what you feel is a major need. So there could be something there about investment. Okay, great. And I'm seeing also here, but hold on, aren't there also times where you have to eat meat? We're going to get to this question a little bit later about times where you have to eat meat. Okay, so let's go on a little bit. Thank you for, these are some different options of what Rebbe Elazar Ben Azaria may be getting at. Um, there's certainly one view of this that is about the financial piece, so we won't go into this inside, but that next text in the Tosefta here on the page, he basically has a sense of you can only eat meat if you are wealthy enough to afford it. But essentially the picture is eating meat is an expensive proposition. It's not that you should never eat meat. That's not the picture here at all. Um, but the picture here is it's something that you're aware of the cost of it. Um, now, you know, I, I didn't bring, you see, you see sort of when the, when Jews first immigrated to the United States, you get all these Yiddish songs and poems about how cheap meat is and it's like Shabbat every day. Um, so I think part of what is motivating this study and learning, and I think a lot of the moment that we are in in our own time, is the question of how do we even approach a, a time in the history of the world where it's possible to eat meat cheaply. Um, and part of what I, what I hope this learning exposes when we start with this position, Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria, who's saying, well, what you have, what, what eating meat has to be is, a, there has to be awareness of the high cost. That has to be part of the, um, part of the process of eating meat. So wait, why is that so important to him? Is that, is that for ethical reasons, sustainable reasons? And what do we do with that approach when we happen to live in an era where it is possible to eat meat cheaply? And some of what our sources will explore as we go on is, well, is it possible to eat meat cheaply or are there, are there costs, even if they're hidden costs, um, to make that possible? And, um, and I think that the kind of other question that needs to be on our mind, especially as we are moving towards something like lab-grown meat becoming more um, possible, though right now it is extremely expensive, but theoretically it would make meat cheaper one day in the future, is, um, you know, is this in principle, it always has to be expensive to eat meat, or is it only when there is a certain kind of relationship to animals that... Um, that we need to be aware of those costs. So this is 
it's clearly his view that eating meat has to be something where we're aware of the investment and um, we're one to continue engaging with, well, why? Why is that so important as we go on? Okay, this is one of the most beautiful sources that we're going to look at next from the Kliyakar. This is a more agadic moment in our learning as we're mixing the, the kind of ethical and technical halachic literature. Um, the Kliyakar, so a 16th century commentator on the Torah, takes a view of this passage in Devarim, which can often be understood as an expansive passage illegally. It's expanding the extent to which you can eat meat actually zones in on how it is still limiting the way we eat meat. So even though it uses that phrase, anytime you want, you should eat meat. What the Kliakar does here is say, actually the point of the verse is you should not be eating meat too much. You shouldn't be indulging that craving too much. So we'll read a little bit of this together. So God expands your, board, your borders and you say, I want to eat meat. And it teaches you that a person isn't drawn after their, their cravings, um, sort of indulgences, except from greater expansiveness, which he's reading here as something like ego. Um, Okay, and so he is essentially saying that craving to eat meat, he sees as reflecting somewhat of a rebellion against, against God. Um, Okay, so he's saying, actually what you see in this passage is it's linking this idea of having a desire, a craving for meat, with a reality of being far away from God. So even though it's, it's technically allowed and you can eat meat, it's not something that you want to be indulging in a lot because it represents um, having your having your cravings and a sort of mindset of indulgence um, being more prominent than your closeness to God and sense of a fear of God. Okay, this is one amazing thing about how he gets to this textually. It's in the bold part here. V'zesha amar ach ka'asher ye'achel that's why the pasuk says you should eat that meat when you're away from the from the mikdash and you can't bring it as a sacrifice. So it's not just going to be tzon uvakar, domestic animals. That's okay. You can eat those domestic animals just like you would a tzvi or ayal, the gazelle or the heart, right? That can't be offered. So fine, you can eat it in a non-ritual, non-sacrificial way. But this is what he does with, with this idea, this analogy to the wild animals. The rabbis say this is actually teaching you that you should only eat meat when, um, when it kind of happens upon you. Meaning, if you have to go hunting for meat, that actually means the meat is not immediately available to you at all times, 
right? You have to invest to hunt it, to find the animal. Sometimes that will work, sometimes it won't. It's not going to be an all the time kind of experience. If you become used to eating meat that you have around you, the sheep and the cows that are domesticated, then you're going to you're going to be kind of feeding this craving. Um, all the time, you'll become accustomed to have a craving for me every day. Aval im lo yochal ad asher yatzud ba'yarot u'bamidbarot tzayid chaya o'of sheyesh lo sakana v'torach gadol latzudam as tishkot avato ki ena chila shavah ba'godal hatzar v'hatorach. If you have to go hunting for the animal and you can't just eat one that's that's right there with you, then you're gonna realize there's danger. There's hard work involved in eating this animal, and that will help uh, tame and sort of quell your desire for meat. Okay, so this passage that we often think of as expanding the extent to which you can eat meat, it doesn't have to be brought as a sacrifice. It can be in your own home. He understands as, yeah, but the point is you should eat it like you would the gazelle or the heart, the animal you have to hunt, the animal that is not found right there with you, so that you are not feeding this desire and not living with this craving for meat all the time. Okay, so that's our that's our um, kind of fundamental passage in Devarim that you can take in those two ways as expanding or still limiting the way we eat meat and the context in which we do so. There's a lot we could say there about the 16th century and some of the other kind of um, moral and somewhat aesthetic ascetic views that under that underlie this um, but I think it's an important source to see. Okay so now that we've seen that somewhat more um, kind of ethical approach to that question of, of contextual eating I want to look a little bit at some of the sources here in the halachic canon where I think part of the question that we are left with now if we're if we have chapter 12 and very as our main starting point is well how common or not common how regular or not regular should meat eating be in the rhythm of our lives? And in some ways, it's a question that's hard to answer because different times historically, depending on what diet's available, what's expensive, what's not, there's obviously been different approaches to this throughout Jewish history from a kind of social history perspective. Um, but can we get a sense from the halachic canon um, about how much meat eating should be part of our lives? Again, if we're not in that black and white, either yes meat or no meat, but in some kind of more subtle um, how, how to eat meat question. So I brought you two sources here that relate to the idea of, well, you don't eat meat when you're in mourning. Okay, so one example here is Moed Katan talking about when a person is actually individually in a state of mourning and you don't eat wine or, or meat in the initial stage. And what we may know, um, sort of all know throughout the rhythm of the year is as Tisha B'Av approaches here in the, in the Gemara, it just talks about Erev Tisha B'Av, just one day before Tisha B'Av, not a full nine days that emerges later. And um, you should not eat meat or wine. Lo yochal basar v'lo yayin. And the day before Tisha B'Av. Okay, so these are two examples that 
um, that suggest you don't eat meat when you're mourning. The way to approach the Tisha B'Av example is a little bit confusing. Is that about mourning in general or specifically about the Beit HaMikdash, the temple where meat and wine were brought on the altar and so maybe that's why you're refraining from meat. Um, but I think when you see it alongside that Moed Katan example about mourning in general, it suggests that refraining from meat is a sign of mourning. Now I bring this here because in some ways, right, refraining from meat on Erev Tisha B'Av is only meaningful if usually you, you can eat meat and maybe even if you eat meat somewhat often, right? Otherwise refraining from meat wouldn't have that much effect, right? It wouldn't be that significant. So in some ways I bring these texts as um, to teach you the, the kind of counterpoint, which is they seem to suggest that otherwise throughout the year, eating meat is something that um, would be totally on the table, so to speak, um, at least in, in theory, if you had it. So that's, that's sort of one approach. But I also want to bring here the Rambam, right, from the other perspective, is there a time where meat is prescribed halachically? Um, people often talk about bringing the Korban Pesach that came in the chat. But even beyond that, every holiday had a Korban Chagiga. There was a celebratory sacrifice brought for every holiday. And, and even after the temple is destroyed, there's a tradition to have meat on the holidays themselves. And I just want to bring this to you. People often point to that as, oh, so halachically, there is a time when you are supposed to be having meat, but I just want you to see this in the Rambam and the way that is framed, in part because it brings us back to the, um, the passage in Devarim chapter 12 about the, the ritual context of eating meat having an ethical valence to it. Okay. So, on all holidays, a person is obligated to be joyful, simcha, along with the entire household, because it says, v'samachta bechagecha, you should rejoice on your holiday. Okay, even though in the Torah that's referring to offering sacrifices, it includes rejoicing in a way that is appropriate to everyone. For kids, that's certain things. For women, that's certain things. Here, that's clothing. And for men, hanashim ochlim basar vishotin yayin. Okay, so we might or may not agree with the, the gender aspect of this, but the idea is that on holidays, eating meat and drinking wine is part of simcha. simcha ela bevasar, simcha ela That's the only way you can really rejoice. Okay, but it, that's not where this ends, right? The idea of meat and holidays has a very particular kind of social valence to it. You have to also feed others when you're rejoicing on your holiday. Because it says in Devarim, where it talks about being joyful on the holiday, it also says, You need to be sharing your food and your festivity with the stranger and the orphan and the widow and other people who are, who are poor or destitute. Aval. This is harsh. If you lock your door and you just eat your meat with your immediate family and you don't give any of that to people who are poor, whether that's impoverished in terms of money or also in terms of um, spirit, that's not called simcha of a mitzvah. That's called simcha of your own belly. 
and that's a disgrace. Okay, so I just want to bring that to you, right? The, the sort of one time where we see here that eating meat would be halachically required, it's within this particular context that brings us back to bringing a korban where the meat that you eat is going to be shared. And just as a reminder, right, in a world without refrigerators, meat would go bad. So if you kill a whole animal as part of a sacrifice, you have a lot of meat that has to be eaten quickly. So of course, that's going to be an opportunity to share it and not just eat it within your own family. Um, okay, any responses to this simchat mitzvah in the Rambam? We have a question in the chat that I don't think uh, we responded to yet. How can Jews hunt meat and Oh, then... okay, great. So yeah. the way that the hunting would work is you would trap it. You just trap the animal and then shecht it. Oh. That's how that seems to work in the, in the rabbinic sources. So you set up a trap for the deer. It doesn't kill the deer. It just traps it. And then you would shecht it. So it certainly still requires shechting. Yes. Okay, any, any responses to this Rambam? I mean, it's sort of hard. Obviously, times can change and social settings can change, but that image of, well, yeah, you lock, you lock, of course we're gonna lock the door to our houses when we sit down to our, you know, Passover feast. Um, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a, a severe, but maybe important, um, reproach to hear, right, that idea of indulging in this more expensive food without that being somehow shared is actually not what it looks like to do simcha shal mitzvah. It definitely uh, also, it, it, it works very well with, you know, in the, in the Tanakh, it, it seems clear that, you know, the time where you're eating meat the most in the Beit HaMikdash, all the time where you should be sharing it with Anib, etc. So it really works that like, yes, meat is, is it, it's, it's, it's linked with, with simcha, it's linked with happiness, but in a way that we also want to make sure you're never too happy just for yourself. Like you should be also making sure that happiness flows outwards. Yeah. To what happens yeah. Great. Amazing. Yeah. And that's exactly right. That's sort of this picture of if you, if you sort of think of, well, if the ideal in Devarim chapter 12 is that you bring meat as sacrifices and that's not really something that we are doing. That's not, that's not an option nowadays. So does that mean that we just stop eating meat? So what you see here in the Rambam is, is sort of a way to continue the ethos there, which is like, yes, you, you have simcha, you have the means, you want to celebrate it. So eating meat is going to be part of that, but that just has to be embedded in um, a wider access to enjoy that. And certainly, as we're seeing in the chat here, if you're not going to invite poor guests, um, then giving tzedakah during those holidays in particular is certainly one way to, to reflect that ethos. But again, you sort of get this picture of eating meat. It, it can and even should happen, um, but within this larger kind of context that's accounting for the fact that it is expensive and not accessible to everyone. Okay, gonna move on a little bit here. Shabbat, okay, so a lot of people say, oh, but Shabbat, you have to have meat. Well, actually, I brought you just the Rambam codifying what you see some in the Talmud. There's not actually anything explicit about having meat on Shabbat. Shabbat food is supposed to be more special in some way. Okay, so the Rambam here talks about Oneg Shabbat, Tavshil Shaman Bioter, where you should have food that's like a little bit fattier in some way, Mashkem Mivusam, 
your drink should be nicely spiced, but it should all be based on your own means and income. Um, and he says explicitly, Yes, it is considered a delight for Shabbat to eat meat and drink wine. If you can afford it. And he, he brings um, an important quote that could be taken in all sorts of extreme directions, but this is how it's deployed in the Talmud. Better to make your Shabbat like a weekday rather than relying on others which is come to understood as, well, don't spend so much money on Shabbat and your Oneg Shabbat that it's going to be something you can't actually afford and you'll end up needing to rely on others for financial support. Um, so this is, it's framed here financially, um, but you can see that there's no specific requirement to have meat on Shabbat, just a requirement for Shabbat food to be special in some way. Okay. Um, let's look at some of the more, um, some other, right, so besides that, I think that's sort of our, our main frame of what are the contexts in which halacha envisions eating meat. We've explored that a little bit. Um, now let's look at this question of treatment of animals, tsa'ar ba'alei chayim, right, causing pain to animals as a prohibition. We're not going to go through that entirety of that in this session that would be, take us a little bit. Um, too long to get into fully, but it, there's a, a passage in the Talmud in Bava Metziah where we see at the end of the day, Rava, prominent sage, uh, rules that Sa'ar Ba'alei the problem of causing pain to animals, is it's severe. It's a core violation. It's Do'oraita. It's a, it's a core prohibition. Um, okay. Yes, go ahead. So I'm only asking this because you talk about Maimonides and of course he grew up in, in Spain, and I know this was a Sephardic tradition of eating a lot of fish, but I'm wondering, is fish ever addressed in this context in terms of um, vegetarianism and like where does fish fall? And, and right, the, okay, great. So certainly in the, in the opening source that we looked at, it's clear that when it's talking about Adam in Gan Eden, him not eating any animals included not eating fish, right? We saw that explicitly, that he couldn't eat fish, he could use them for work, um, for some kind of work. In, in many of these other sources, fish are not prominent because the concern is about um, blood, right? As we saw in Durarium chapter 12, the concern is about blood from the animal and, and that is not understood halakhically as being a concern about fish. Um, we know that fish are parved, they don't require shrita. So fish are in somewhat of a different conversation in terms of the technical kosher, kind of kashrut laws, um, but in this ideal of not hurting animals at all, as we saw in the Gun Eden passage, fish are there. So that's that's a bit of an answer. Um, okay, so so the question is, how much is this concern of tsar ba'alei chayim this kind of ethical concern tied into laws of kashrut or not. And we're going to look at one major debate here. Um, part of our question is, you know, well, what, what are the ideal ways of engaging with, with meat? Um, there's, a, there's a major debate between Maimonides, the Rambam, and Nachmanides, Ramban, about Sa'ar Ba'alei Chaim, 
and how it's related to laws of kashrut. So we'll just, we'll get a little taste of it here. Um, so the Rambam says, the commandment concerning killing of animals is necessary, this is in the guide, because the natural food of man consists of vegetables and the flesh of animals. It's totally natural for us to eat meat. Um, the best meat is that of animals permitted to be used as food. So he's sort of saying there's medical reasons for the, for the laws of kashrut in which animals are kosher or not. Um, but, right, adds that since the desire of procuring good food necessitates the slaying of animals, or just as people who are looking to eat, we're going to end up wanting to, to kill animals. That's just what's going to happen. The Torah enjoins that the death of the animal should be the easiest. You can't torment the animal by cutting the throat in a clumsy manner, poleaxing, cutting off a limb while the animal is alive. So this is our reading of, yes, you can eat meat. We're going to need to eat meat to be healthy as people. But what you see in the laws of, of kashrut is that it should harm the animal least. Lots of debates nowadays about whether that is true based on other methods that are available now nowadays, but that is the ethos that the Rambam is, is putting forward and applies that to other laws as well about meat, such as the prohibition on killing an animal with its young on the same day. Um, he says the point of that is in order that people should be restrained and preventing from killing two together in such a manner that the young is slain in the sight of the mother. For the pain of the animals under such circumstances is very great. Okay, so seeing here that technical rule in Kashrut um, about not killing an animal and its child the same day as being rooted in a concern, a sort of ethical concern for Tsar Bale Chaim, it causes real pain to the animal. And he goes on to say there's no difference in this case between the pain of man or humanity and the pain of other living beings um, based on his understanding of love and tenderness being rooted in um, something that's more fundamental than the more complex human soul. Okay, so that's the Rambam's picture here. A lot of laws of kashrut are actually about not causing pain to the animals. And Ramban um, somewhat similar but slightly different, says the reason for them is not actually about the pain they cause to the animal, but because of what they do to us. It's sort of a virtue ethics picture, right? It would be bad for us and our own souls to do things that are cruel to an animal. Okay, so we'll just read one line of this here. The rationale for these laws about I'm not slaughtering an animal and it's kid on the same day and sending away the mother bird is another example he's talking about here. The rationale for both of them is that we not have a cruel heart and be pitiless. Um, and he also says so that we don't uproot a whole species. That's another picture of his. But the idea is it's not Maimonides picture where the concern is causing pain to the animal itself. There may be that. There may not be that as, as fully as there is in humans. But whether or not it causes specific pain, it is bad for us to do an act that is cruel. Um, okay, so, right, you just see this in this last line here. He, he quotes Maimonides that the idea is not to cause pain and says, but it is more correct that it is so that we not be cruel. Ba'avur shelo nit achzar. Okay, so that's sort of 
another piece of our puzzle to have in mind as we think about well, what ways should be should we be relating to animals and and meet this principle that it either not cause pain to the animal um, unduly or that it not be something that is cruel for us to do. Okay, you can look at the rest of that Ramban on your own if you'd like. But this brings us to this kind of critical um, source in traditions about Sa'ar Bali Chaim causing pain to animals. This is the Trumat Hadeshen, um, a 15th century source in, in Ashkenaz, um, that puts a limit on the concern of Tsar Bali Chaim of causing pain to animals. He's talking about a question about plucking feathers from live geese. Is it like shearing sheep or is it forbidden because it causes pain? And other, right, other tr things that are happening at the time, cutting a bird's tongue so it will speak, a dog's ears and tail to make it pretty. So certain kinds of aesthetic things that are happening in his time period around animals who are pets. Um, and the bottom line here is near in hadivarim de ein asur or ein isur mishum tsar balechaim imhu osel letorchav uletashmisho. There's no concern about causing pain to the animal if there's a purpose to what is being done, if it's done for one's needs and to serve a purpose. Okay, so this becomes a constraint where tsar balechaim is understood as just acting kind of wantonly for no good reason, putting an animal in pain. And um, that's what the problem is for causing pain to animals. But anything that is actually about serving a human purpose and need um, is going to be considered halachically acceptable. Could spend a lot more time on that source, but you can see that that ends up um, entering into the codified halacha in the Ramah, our um, Ashkenazic gloss on the Shulchan Aruch brings this essentially, right? Anything needed for medicinal purposes or other things, there's no prohibition of causing pain to the animals. So, Tarikh Olish Ar Divarim, okay? Whether it's for healing medicine or anything else, then there's not a problem of Tsar Chaim. And therefore, based on this um, discussion that we just saw, it's permitted to pluck feathers from live geese technically permitted, and yet he adds, right, nevertheless, even though it's technically allowed, people generally refrain from doing that kind of thing because it's cruelty, and that feels like it's sort of a resonance of Ramban, of Nachmanides, that we not engage in certain behaviors because they are just cruel, even though technically it sounds like there's not a specific violation. Okay, so that's some of our complex, um, complex sources on this issue of causing pain to animals. Um, okay, I see that there's more in the chat and I will try to get to some of it as we end, but I wanna make sure to get to this last piece. Um, so the question is kind of how do you synthesize all of this in contemporary practices of raising animals and meat and, um, you know, we live in a moment where there, there are more options than there have been in the past around getting 
kosher meat that is also kind of humanely treated. There's some more options around that, not not a ton. Um, but what we're going to look at now is some halachic sources on whether animals that are sick are considered kosher. So beyond the tsar chayim, does it cause pain to the animal, where you can see there's always going to be a balance and counterbalance of, well, if there's enough of a human need that it's serving, then that could justify almost any treatment of the animal, it looks like. Um, certainly if you have a need like food. Um, so the tsar chayim ethical argument can kind of only go so far when we're looking at questions of, of treating animals and um, and whether that is appropriate. So we're going to just follow this one other track, which is a little bit more in the technical kashrut perspective, which is, is a sick animal considered kosher? Now, why does this matter so much when you think about contemporary practices of raising animals? Right? So many animals now are raised when they're in large farms in a way that they, they wouldn't actually survive if they weren't given um, intensive antibiotic doses and right and there may be other ways in which the animals wouldn't be able to survive on their own with, without the the infrastructure of the farm because of how they are being treated in, in crowding and diet and all of this so the question is is that actually a problem from a kashrut perspective and we'll just we'll do a brief tour of this angle but i think it's an important angle to pursue again to bring together the kind of ethics and aesthetics or, or ritual aspects of kashrut. So the main principle that we see in Mishnah Chulin is the idea, besides all the very specific um, kinds of wounds that would make an animal a trefa, right, not kosher because it has some kind of defect that might theoretically have, have made it die of its own rather than shrita being the thing that kills it, um, we have this general rule, Anything where in usual, in general circumstances, an animal like this would not survive, that's considered a trefa. It's not kosher. Okay, so if you were to extend this to if an animal can't survive because of its conditions without an intensive regimen of antibiotics, right, would that actually potentially make it um, trefa in and of itself, even if it's not one of the particular signs that are considered trefa? Okay, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that that's true necessarily, but it's an important thing to consider that actually a kosher animal is essentially one that is healthy um, in these halakhic sources. And it's not just about the animal itself, it's also about the milk that comes from the animal and potentially about the eggs that come from the animal. So if there's an animal that's identified as having a problem of trefa, that it has a certain kind of of wound that makes it a trefa, then its milk is no longer kosher either. Now, why does this matter so much? Because we actually know even in, in when animals are raised to be kosher animals to be slaughtered, many of them are not um, healthy enough to to be considered um, kosher. And the way that that's the way that that's dealt with nowadays is right. Those animals can be can be sold to um, to gentile um, meat vendors. And that's one of the ways that problem is dealt with. When it comes to milk, though, milk comes from animals and then it's sort of all mixed together and you wouldn't even know whether the animal that it's originating from is technically kosher or not based on its health. So, 
so as as we kind of go on to look at this material, you have to think about how does this work in a world where animals are raised in such a way that many of them are actually not fully healthy. And we know about that um, when it comes to eating meat and there's sort of a selection process when it comes to which ones go on to the kosher meat market. Um, it's actually a lot more complicated when it comes to drinking milk. Okay. Um, can spend a little bit more time with these a little bit later on, but I, I wanted to, to bring you this one quote from Rashi. It's sort of clear that raising kosher animals is inevitably also going to involve there being trefot, there being some of the animals that are not well enough to be considered kosher, right? So we have this phrase in the Gemara in Kiddushin, Tov Shabbatachim Shutafo Shal Amalek. Even the best butcher is really a partner with Amalek, meaning there's something bad about butchers. What's so bad? Rashi says, They have an animal. It's a suffix trefa. It's not clear whether it's healthy enough or might have one of these wounds to make it not kosher. But yet, they're concerned about their money. They don't want to lose a whole animal. So they're going to go ahead and, and sell it. Um, even though they're aware that it might not have been kosher from the perspective of being healthy enough to be kosher. And this is, I think, again, getting back to that question of Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria wants us to know that eating meat is expensive. Eating kosher meat is expensive. It's true. Eating kosher meat is expensive. And if there are kind of market forces that are going to make it hard for that meat to be expensive, then you're going to end up with meat that might not necessarily be kosher being kind of passed off as kosher because otherwise there would just be too much of a financial loss. Okay, so this is part of the, well, do we maybe just need to be aware that eating meat is expensive and not sort of pretend that it can be cheap and then adjust some of our habits accordingly? Okay, last two pieces that we're going to look at not in full are two responsa from the modern period. One is from um, the 20th century of Moshe Feinstein dealing with the question of veal and whether it's permitted to eat veal, whether it's permitted to raise veal. Right? And he points out just in the beginning that the way animals are treated, besides the Tsar Balechaim piece, which is of course important and he gets to later, he points out that the animals are so unhealthy and um, experts say that only 15 in 100 of them are kosher meaning a minority of them are kosher when it comes to the technicalities of being a trefa, being kosher, and, and so many of them are unhealthy enough that they're not kosher, right? That in and of itself is a cause for concern from a kind of purely technical level as to whether these animals could be kosher. And then he goes on to say that it's also a problem because of tsa'ar ba'alei chaim, right? And points out that even you, you could say here, okay, fine, but the animals are being treated in this way um, in order to serve a human purpose, right? We're gonna, they're gonna be able to make more money by treating the animal this way. So shouldn't that kind of pass the test? It's not wanton cruelty. And he says, no, actually um, the way that the meat sellers are making money off of this is just by making people think they're getting better meat that's somehow healthier for them when it's not. It just looks a certain way so that people will spend more money on it. And he says, Asur litsa'er etta behemal ha'achila devarim, she'en lahana amehan, 
She meets the Arab Bahila. You can't feed an animal things that cause it pain um, just in order to make a little bit more profit. That is not that is not an acceptable thing, and it's also kind of cheating people because they think they're getting something better than it is. Um, so he sort of falls very, very clearly on that end. And the last piece that I'll mention, just because it ties back to where we started, is another response from the 20th century about eggs, right? eggs from chickens, where there's this practice of induced molting to make the chickens lose their feathers and produce more eggs that involves starving chickens for days at a time. And he essentially at the end says, even though we have this principle that you can cause pain to animals if it's for human need, he says there's actually a category called achzarit lev, something that's just total cruelty that goes beyond anything that was ever permitted to do to an animal for human need. That is not permitted at all. And he puts starving animals for many days into that category. And just to close um, this source and to come to the end of our learning, right? he says also that this is about um, Kiddusha, essentially. right? He closes by saying, Zera Avraham, Part of our identity as being descendants of Avraham is that the Torah sort of assumes that we will be merciful to everyone. That's what our identity is about. And this kind of cruelty is only found with Gentiles. Now, obviously, that is not necessarily true at all. In fact, there's quite a lot of activists in the non-Jewish world about um, taking care of animals compassionately. But you can see here the kind of meeting of the Kiddusha language in the first sources that we looked at, Anche Kodesh, that we and the way we eat animals and meat is supposed to be a sign of Kedusha, that that's not just about some sort of aesthetic or ritual thing, but here is actually tied to an inheritance of being um, merciful, compassionate, and that should be part of what it looks like to have Jewish practices of consuming meat. Okay, I'm going to stop my share here and curious to engage with any questions, comments in our last few minutes together in this session um, on any of the specifics that we saw or what anything that you noticed about this interweaving or not interweaving between the ethical and the ritual here. Okay, I'm certainly seeing in the chat a question about shackle and hoist and terrorizing the animals. Yeah, I think, right, all of this, we have the language in these sources. Um, we have the language in these sources to say that all of those practices are problematic. And again, I think what's kind of pushing us into this direction of these practices existing is part of our modern moment where people are expecting meat to be cheap and available Right. And again, we kind of have that anecdote from, um, or that more agadic perspective from Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Azariah that says, well, if our picture is, we know that eating meat is expensive and it cannot really be part of our everyday, um, our everyday life, because if it is, 
then it's going to end up being cruel, right? The costs are going to be there somewhere. And I think that is, that is some of what I'm trying to present in this picture that we, we can't really just approach those questions of causing pain to animals in an isolated way. We have to be ready to have a, a bigger picture here that eating, eating meat from animals, not totally forbidden in halachic sources, um, but clearly something that's expensive and an investment and can only be done in certain ways. Okay. Are there, okay, so certainly if you want to know more about contemporary meat producers, um, I know there are some, I'm not going to be like a walking advertisement here, but I will say that, that we certainly in the past five years in our lives have, have found out more living in New York City about available meat that's treated more humanely. And yes, it is more expensive, and so we eat less of it than we would otherwise, but there are some such as Grow and Behold and um, Coal food, and I think even as as these have emerged, even some of the some of the practices of of larger kosher meat um, industries have changed to some extent. You can get a, there's a certain brand of empire that's also treated better. Wise chickens. Anyway, you can you can explore, but I I hope that this was an opportunity to see some of the intersection between the ethical and the halachic, and hopefully gives a little bit more. Um, material to sink into rather than just getting into a sort of black and white vegetarian or not vegetarian um, mode. So thanks so much for this learning. It was lovely to spend this time with you all. Take good care. Have a good rest of the day.